Morning, everybody. Nice to be here. My wife sends her greetings to you. I got a call about 6 a.m., and we had a nice, happy chat. Also talked to my son and daughter out in uh, Brookings, South Dakota. They've been uh, working there in the gospel and um, had some kids' clubs the other day with about 15 or 20 kids and uh, made about 20 good contacts on the door, so they're quite encouraged and continuing to work there. There are about uh, 25 or 30 young people out there um, working in that town, uh, Brookings. Well, uh, let's go back to Hebrews chapter 11, please. We are going to move forward today into a, another area of study that, that's linked with this idea. But um, let's just read again the first few verses of Hebrews 11. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, or the confident ground of unseen hope, the convicting proof or convincing proof of invisible realities. For by it the elders obtained a good report, and we have the same statement at the end of the chapter. Through faith we understand... Through faith we understand that the world, or the ages, were framed by the Word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Everything now visible was made from something invisible. What else is out there that we can't see yet? There are more worlds to come, aren't there? And these worlds will be even grander than the world in which we presently live. But I would suggest to you that what the writer to the Hebrews is actually talking about is not the world of dirt and trees and mountains. He's talking about the world of people. Because when the Bible speaks about the world, sometimes it means the, the enemy of the church. It means the system where people are trying to be happy without God, it's talking about a system that has been built up in opposition to God. Sometimes, however, the world means the physical world, the world that then was being overflowed with water. But sometimes it means the world of people, for God so loved the world. And I think it's in that sense that, that the Bible is describing here for us how God has taken the invisible and made it real in the lives of people. In other words, how can we see faith? How can people know the reality of the invisible world? Well, the way they know it is by that invisible world becoming visible through people like you. That's the idea we have in the chapter here. That people who never see the face of God, they see your face. And they see the love that you may show, the kindness, the gentleness, the graciousness. And people see in your life the reality of God. And, and so the Scripture speaks about us becoming godly. Through these exceeding great and precious promises, it's possible to become a partaker of the divine nature. So that when people look at you, they think of Him. Hope, of course, is the present enjoyment of a future certainty. It's not the hope-so of the unbelieving world. The present enjoyment of a future certainty. And when people meet people who have real hope, it shows in their lives, you see. I, I've only been witness to one time in my life, and that was by a a Mormon lady who began to talk to me on the plane. And as we discussed matters, she finally said, well, even if it's not true, I still like being a Mormon. <laughs> well, just after she made that statement, we hit some of the, the roughest clear air turbulence I've ever experienced on a plane. And that plane jumped and slewed and slid and you could hear the pilot pouring the coal to the engines and 
trying to find some smooth air somewhere, tried all different altitudes, and nothing would do. And that poor woman, I just had to stop talking. She said, sir, would you mind if I held your hand? She was terrified. She sat there, grim-faced, you know. And uh, when finally, after about 15, 20 minutes of this, it settled down, I said, you know, God just gave us a little experiment there. I said, you, you talk a really good talk, you know, but you were terrified of dying. I said, you know, if this plane went down, I'd go up. It would be better for me. Anybody's religion works well in smooth, smooth times. It's when you hit the tough times. That's when your religion has to work for you. It's not when you're sitting in the, in the sanctuary with the light coming through the stained glass windows and the organ music. It's when you're standing looking into the grave of a loved one saying, where are they? The first funeral I ever took, I was 21 years of age, and the young fellow who had died was 21. His mother was a very religious woman, but she threw herself right into the hole, right down into the grave on top of the coffin, crying, Jimmy, Jimmy, I'll never see you again. Her religion didn't work for her, did it? No hope. The real and certain hope that, that is given to the child of God on the basis of faith. And so, this description in the chapter here is not describing the physical world. It's describing the world of people. That God is simply using this world. I was asked at a, at a young people's camp one time. We had a Q&A box and somebody uh, threw in the question, explain the universe and give three examples. Well, it's not as tough a question as you might think. I can explain the universe in one sentence. The universe is the temporary stage which God has built on which to enact the drama of redemption. And yes, there are three examples, but I'll leave that for later. <laughs> when we come to this idea of, of the world which God has made, Hebrews chapter 1 describes this and says that, that our Lord Jesus is such a magnificent person that like putting on work clothes to do a project, the Lord Jesus put on the universe. And when He's done, He's going to fold it up and put it away, just like you put away your work clothes. What kind of a person is He that has built for us this temporary arrangement? And that's why I'm afraid I can't get quite as frantic as a lot of the ecologists I mean, yeah, I like to look after the planet, but the fact is this is a temporary arrangement. And the earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. And we look for a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness will be at home, where everything will be right and everybody in that new world will agree with God. Every will, everyone will want it just that way. So that's our hope. Now, I want to take this little phrase... By faith, we understand, and link it to two other phrases. By faith, we understand. Now, there are some things we understand by intuition. We just know they're true. Nobody has to tell us. We're, we're hardwired with certain information, including the knowledge of the existence of God. You have to learn to be an atheist. You have to work hard at it. As C.S. Lewis said, young atheists can never be too careful, because there's evidence everywhere to prove the existence of God. There are some things that we learn by careful reasoning. We have to put the pieces together. We have to think it through to come to conclusions. But there are some things we will only, only understand by faith. You, with all your reasoning powers, would never conclude that the solution to the human dilemma was for God to become a man and for that man to be a servant and for that servant to become a sacrifice. You'd never come up with such an idea. That's why Paul says, who's been God's counselor? Where did he ever get these ideas from? People say it's too good to be true. I say it's too good not to be true. I never would have thought of it. Would you? Would you have the audacity to go to God and say, God, 
here's an idea. Why don't you come down here to this little speck of dust off in the corner of your universe and become like one of your little creatures. And and you do good all your life. You live in poverty and obscurity and, and you bless children and feed the hungry and raise the dead. And you let people say the most terrible things about you, accuse you of being demon-possessed, of being a lunatic. Let people use your name like a, a foul gutter word. And and go on loving them. In fact, as the Scripture says, you despise the despising. You, you think nothing of it when they think nothing of you. And then, and then you let your creatures take you and beat you and spit on you, make you the song of the drunkard, the ribald joke of the barroom, and spike you to a tree, strip you naked. And if that's not bad enough, then how be if your father opens heaven and pours out all the judgment this wicked world deserves on his lovely son? And, and don't just take us from our horrible debt back to zero, as we heard in the story last night. But open the treasures of heaven. Make us joint heirs with you and give us everything you've got. Make us as rich as you are. It's true, you know. I'm as rich as God is. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us most things? No. All things. All things. And then, well, here's something. Here's an idea. Uh, (laughs) We've ruined your earth, so why not redecorate heaven so we'll feel at home there and let us move in with you. And we'll live with you there forever. In fact, Bring us into your family. Make us your children. That's it. Well, I know this sounds daring, but would you mind moving over a bit on your throne there and letting us get up on your throne with you and rule the universe with you? See, you never would have thought of it. I never would have thought of it. We would only understand that because God has revealed it to us by faith. Now, here's the, here's the practical side. How do you win over your enemies? See, we've been, we've been sent on a mission here, every one of us. You may think you just, you've been here all your life, but Jesus said no. The fact is that when you were born here the first time, you were stillborn. You were born dead. And when you were born again, you were born from above. You received the life of heaven. And says the Lord Jesus, I have sent them into the world as thou hast sent me into the world. And so the moment you were born again, you were sent on a mission in behind enemy lines. And your mission, not should you choose to accept it, your mission, which has been commissioned to you by the Lord Jesus, is to find ways to convince enemies of God to lay down their arms of resistance and come over to the winning side. What tactics then would you use? What what are your secret weapons in this mission? Well, let's go over to Galatians chapter 5. Here's our first sentence. Can you see it written up on the board here? By faith, We understand. What we're going to hear today has nothing to do with rationale. It has nothing to do with clever ideas. What you're going to hear today, God's tactics for us to win the world to Christ, would only be understood by faith. You'd never get this any other way. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision avails anything, nor uncircumcision. In other words, in this, in this commission, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile at this point, doesn't give you a great deal of advantage. What is your advantage? How are you going to do this? Listen, here's, here's the statement. Faith works by love. Alright, by faith, We understand. Faith works by love. Nobody can see my faith. Love 
makes faith visible. Right? James said, You say you have faith without works? Show, go ahead and show me. <laughs> you can't do it. You can't show me your faith. Unless it's by works. Works, good works, manifest the reality of faith. So faith, he says, works by love. And I'll add the third couplet, third statement to it. A well-known verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love never fails. Alright. So if God's tactic, when God looked at an at a world, as the Lord Jesus came into this world, the, the Apostle Paul writes, when we were enemies, Christ died for us. So here's a hostile world, hostile to God, enemies of God. They don't trust God. They don't love God. They don't want God. And heaven opens to bring the world to its knees. That's God's objective, isn't it? You know, you, you hear things about the Muslims wanting to take over the world. Well, don't be too hard in your criticism, because that's Jesus' plan. He will not be satisfied until he has world dominion, and every knee bows and every tongue confesses that he is Lord. Why? Because it's to the glory of God the Father. He wants God to be glorified from every God-conscious creature that has ever been made. From the demons of hell, the devil himself, Muhammad's going to get down on both his knees, and the Buddha, and all the rest of them. They're going to get down and they're going to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the Lord Jesus' mission. Everything is out of order. Everything is out of array. Everything is topsy-turvy. And the work of the Lord Jesus is to bring things again under the feet, not of God, but of man. God created man and put him over the creation. But when man fell, the whole thing got upset. And so the Lord Jesus came as a representative man. We see not yet all things but under Him. But His objective is to put all things back in place. And when that happens, the Bible tells us that every one of you has a new body on order. A glorified body. Because after all, these bodies, wonderful though they are, can barely handle the little tasks that God gives us now. If you want to know the relationship between the tasks that God has given us now and the tasks that we will have in that new world to come, the Lord Jesus says, if you're faithful with a penny, I'll give you a city. Now, I don't know how many pennies it takes to buy a city, but there's a lot of them. And if you can hardly handle penny, penny jobs now in this body of yours, however will you do city jobs unless you have a new glorified body? This body will not be marginally better. This body will be spectacularly better. And the Lord Jesus is going to give us those bodies like unto His own glorious body. That day called the manifestation or the unveiling of the sons of God. Because we don't look like we really are now. You see a little wizened up old saint. And if you saw that woman as she really was, she'd look like a superhero. She has learned to wrestle with God. She's learned to pray down blessing from heaven. She's learned to stand against the wiles of the devil. But her little body doesn't look like that. But someday she'll look like she really is. She's going to be given a body that is commensurate with her spirit, with, it, with the work that the Spirit of God has been able to do in her. And that day, called the manifestation or the unveiling of the sons of God, when your neighbors discover they've been living next door to a member of the royal family of heaven, that day that is still coming is required before we can be placed as sons in the family business. We have been made sons, but the placing of sons or the adoption of sons is still waiting that day when at last we'll have the, the equipment, these new bodies, that will be able to do the work that God has given us to do. So, he says, faith works by love, and love never fails. Now, God has seen to it that every one of us finds ourselves in positions of vulnerability. <clears throat> Whether as children to imperfect parents, or wives to imperfect husbands, or 
sheep to imperfect shepherds or citizens to imperfect government, we all find ourselves in positions or, or employees to imperfect employers, we find ourselves regularly in positions of vulnerability where people make decisions on our behalf or they impose their will on us and we find ourselves feeling like victims. Christians are not victims. We are victors. He always leads us in triumph through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are more than conquerors through Him that loveth us. Well, well, come on now, what's the secret? Well, this is it. Love is the secret weapon that turns us from being victims into victors. Let's go over to uh, Romans chapter 12 for a minute. There are three statements about evil in this chapter. And we have to admit that there is increasing evil in the world. It's not simply a matter of uh, better reporting by uh, the news media. The Bible says that men will wax, will grow worse and worse. And we're seeing it every day. There are three statements here in Romans chapter 12 about evil. The first one is found in verse 9. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Abhor. You know, you know the word horror, like horrors, right? That's the idea here. Be horrified by evil. Now, the, the tendency of the world, of course, is to shock us first and then to get us used to things so that we don't get shocked anymore, so that we take it as the course of, of events, as normative. God wants us to be horrified by evil. He wants us to avert our eyes. He wants us to be simple regarding evil, but wise concerning the good. We don't have to know everything that's going on in the world. We don't have to become experts in the evil of the world. Be simple regarding evil. Don't, don't be sophisticated when it comes to evil. Be horrified. And, and make sure you stay that way. And he says, and cleave to that which is good. This word cleave is the word for glue. Stick to it, man. Stay, stay close to it. Keep yourself always occupied with doing good. So that's the first statement. And then in chapter 12 and verse 17 we read, Recompense no man evil for evil. If you recompense evil for good, that's wickedness. If you recompense evil for evil, that's the law. If you recompense good for good, that's expected. But if you recompense good for evil, that's Christianity. We're going to think a little bit more about that. But no, notice the end of the chapter now. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. I spoke on this uh, some years ago. A young man came to me and said, you know, I've got, a, I've got a house full of Pakistanis. Last count, I think there were 28 living in that house. And they throw their garbage over the fence onto my yard. And he said, I used to go around and gather it all up. And once a week, I'd dump it back in their yard. And he said, I've been convicted about this, and I'm not going to dump it in their yard anymore. I'm going to put it in my garbage pail. I said, brother, put her there. That's the first half of the verse. That's the easy part. Don't be overcome of evil. Now I said, part two is, overcome evil with good. He said, man, this is getting tough. I said, yeah. In fact, it's so tough, God has designed it to be so tough that you can't do it. I mean, in yourself, you can't do it. You can only do it if you receive grace from heaven. You can only do it if the Lord Jesus provides you that love, the love of God shed abroad in our hearts. God hasn't asked you to sit there and try and feel mushy and, and gooey about these people next door, you know. He's talking, when we talk about love in the Bible, we're talking about the practical expression of faith. We're talking about sacrificial living, doing things for other people who don't deserve it, 
who probably won't appreciate it, you're doing it for Jesus' sake. Because you've been the recipient of such love and grace, you want to show your gratitude by doing this for others. I said, what you need to do is go over and say, hey guys, we've lived next door for X number of months now, I don't even know you. Can you come over and we'll, we'll cook up some supper and uh, uh, be careful that you know you don't serve meat if they're Muslims or whatever, or, you know, pig or something. You just, you know, just kind of figure that out first. But invite them over and say, I want to get to know you. I want to, like, who are you? What's, tell me your story and, and get, and show some compassion towards these guys. And I said, that's, that's really what the verse is talking about here. Be not overcome of evil, overcome evil with good. The New Testament is chock full of teaching on good works. And for some reason or other, I think if your local church is like a lot of local churches, you rarely hear ministry on the subject of good works. It's like it's not even there. But the New Testament is absolutely full of it. Now, one of the reasons maybe is that we stop a bit short in Ephesians chapter 2. And we preach we are not saved by good works. And that's exactly true. We cannot be saved by good works. If we could be saved by good works, Jesus never would have died. Trying to work your way to heaven by doing good is a mockery to the cross of Christ. So we recognize that that good works are not meritorious for heaven. Good works are a good thing, but they're they're not the sort of thing you can trade to God for salvation. Salvation is not of works, lest anyone should boast. God will not have anybody in heaven who's breaking ranks from the choir. They're singing all glory and praise to the Lord Jesus. And somebody's in the corner saying, I helped Jesus do it. God won't have that. God wants His Son to get all the glory for what's accomplished. And therefore, there will be no boasting in heaven. On the other hand, the very next verse tells us, that while we are not saved by good works, we are saved to good works. We can't work our way to heaven, but we should work on our way to heaven. Good works are not the means by which I'm saved, but they are the evidence that I have been saved. You know the verse in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. A book that helped me a great deal when I was at university studying philosophy and uh, other uh, topics that sometimes uh, took a whack at Christianity was a book called uh, Philosophy and the Christian Faith by Colin Brown, I think his name was. And uh, he he showed that you don't really have to worry too much about philosophy because you just need to be patient. Every generation of philosophers destroys the generation of philosophers before them in order to build their own. So just be patient and they'll do the work for you. But he said there was one philosophy that was never never attacked by philosophers, and that was deism. Now, deism is the concept that God is an absentee landlord. He built the place and then he left. He has nothing to do with us. It's a very common idea still today. People, for whatever reason, can't believe that all this is an accident. Right? Because then, of course, that makes them an accident. And there's no purpose and there's no hope. There's no morality. The death of God also means the death of everything else. And so, they don't like to think that way. And so they say, well, yeah, yeah, I think God was behind all this. But, but, but God doesn't care about us. God made the place and then he's left us alone. Well, Colin Brown said, you know, this philosophy was never answered philosophically. The answer to deism was the Great Awakening. It's pretty hard to argue that God doesn't care about us. He's an absentee landlord. When your next-door neighbor talks and walks with him every day. In other words, the reality of Christianity is what America needs. Not better arguments, not more apologetics. There's a place for that to reason in the Scriptures. But ultimately, the, the argument that proves the case is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's what convinces people. 
there's something about you that can't be explained in any natural way. It's the supernatural work of God in the life of the believer. I was going to tell a story the other day. We ran out of time, but I, I want to tell a story now because I think it illustrates perfectly this, this point. I was telling some folks a story yesterday, but um, the Gaspé Peninsula is the furthest part of mainland Canada, uh, more or less north of Maine. It's a very thoroughly Catholic French area, a beautiful part of the country. If you ever get a chance to travel there, the scenery is, is breathtaking, famous for its Pierce Rock. Well, um, there was a, a psychiatrist that came to St. Anne de Mont on the North Shore. And this woman, uh, she did not believe anything. Didn't believe in God, didn't believe in the Bible, believed in nothing. But um, there was a young man, uh, a, a very strong, able-bodied young man. He was a, a lumberjack. And he had... Uh, he had a post with the mayor in town. He was his bodyguard and his chauffeur. And uh, his father had a drinking problem. And the town had a big fete, a party, out on the steps of the town hall. And his father had too much to drink. And there was a broken step on the front, uh, the, the step uh, leading up to the town hall. And he stepped on that broken bit and he fell back and killed himself. Well, the mayor said, you're going to need a good lawyer, he said to, the, to his chauffeur. You're going to need a good lawyer to get a good settlement for, for your mother. And so he gave him the name of a lawyer who threw the case in the favor of the city and the family didn't get any money at all. Well, this young guy became absolutely furious with this mayor. And so everywhere the mayor showed up, here was this young guy in the crowd yelling at him, murderer, liar, you know, made his life just miserable. Well, eventually the mother came to her son and said, since your father died, you become a very wicked man. You need to read the Bible. And so this young fellow, dutifully, because his mother told him, started to read the Bible. And at 10 o'clock one night, he came on a verse that said, if you have anything against your brother, leave your sacrifice at the altar, go and make it right with him. And he thought, here, he and I go to the same Catholic church, I hate his guts, I want him dead. I can't do this anymore. And so 10.30, he shows up at the mayor's house. Now, the mayor thinks, this is it, game over, he's going to kill me. <clears throat> he says, no, 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 look, look what I found in the Bible, he says, holding up his Bible. I can't do this anymore, I have to forgive you. And so he says, I forgive you. Well, this went through the whole town. There's a little group of Christians in town, and they began to pray for this young man. They said, God is working in his life. Well, as he studied the Bible further... He went to the priest and he said to the priest, can you help me study the Bible? And the priest said, look, that, that's kind of a dangerous book. I, I'd leave it alone if I were you. He said, well, actually, it's making big changes in my life. I, I think it's a helpful book. And so he said, I think I'm going to go down that little group down there. They have a Bible study every week. I think I'll go down there. And the priest said, come on now. Look, look at the big crowd we have in our church. And they just have a few people. We've, we've obviously got the truth. They don't. Well, that was a good argument, he thought, and he went home and kept reading his Bible, and then he came on the verse that said, Broad is the gate, and there are many that go in that way to destruction, and narrow is the gate, and there are only a few that go in that way to life. And he thought, Broad gate, narrow, I think I, think I will go down there. <laughs> and so he went down to this little group that were studying the Bible, and he heard the glorious gospel that he could know for sure that he was saved, because it didn't depend on his works, it depended on one finished work of Christ. It was all done, and it was proved by the resurrection of Christ. And he put his trust in the Lord Jesus, and his whole life was revolutionized. And where before he'd show up at all the town, gathering, shouting, and screaming epithets at the, at the mayor, now he, everywhere he went, he was hugging people and telling them the Lord loved them. And, and uh, this great big lug of a guy that they used to terrorize the town. And now he was just this big... Uh, you know, teddy bear, and and uh, and so, and so, uh, he he would take. He had this water uh, water-based paint, and he he'd paint Bible verses on his car, and he'd drive around town, and he'd shout out the window to everybody. You know, he was always happy. And well, anyway, this psychiatrist saw this dramatic change, and she said, "There's nothing in my textbooks that can explain this." 
And so uh, I was there at St. Andamon, this little prayer meeting. There were just a handful of us. We sat down to, to pray, and just as we were ready to pray, the door burst open, and here was this woman at the door, and two of the ladies looked around and gasped and said, You're saved. They get to see it from her face. And they asked her what had happened, and she said, I just couldn't argue against the evidence of this young man's life and, and the change that had occurred in him. And she said, uh, just last night I got down by my bed, and I said, okay, God, I'll read your Bible. Whatever you say, I'll believe it. She said, she said I thought it would take me maybe you know, a year and a half, two years to get through it. It's a big book, you know. And so she got into bed. She tried to go to sleep. She couldn't sleep. She thought, okay, I'll start the project. So she got out of bed, and she opened up the Bible, and she said, now, all of a sudden, everywhere I looked, it said the same thing. Jesus was saying, I love you. Come to me. I want you. I want you in my family. She said, I'd never seen this before. And she thought, there's no use waiting for, you know, a year to, to do this. I might as well do it now. And so she just asked the Lord to save her and bring bring her into his family. And and her whole life had been transformed. Now, here was a woman. You could have argued up one side and down the other. And you never would have made an inch of difference. But when a man was transformed by the power of the gospel, and where he once had been filled with hate, he was now filled with love. She couldn't explain it, except God had done a work in his life. That's what our world needs to see. That's what, that's what America needs to see. They need to see people who have allowed the Spirit of God to transform them from the inside out, where once there was maybe coldness, stiffness, uh, now there's love and compassion and thoughtfulness. And when people ask us why we're like that, we're, we're ready to tell them, well, actually, it's, it's Jesus. I, I'm not like this naturally. He's done this in my life. He's made me like this. So good works... Prove the family relationship. Men see your good works and they know you're a child of the Father because that's, that's what He does. You know, God is a servant. Some people think that when Jesus came, He became a servant. No, no. No, He took the form of a servant. In other words, He, he came in manifesta- manifestation of the servant heart of God. I mean, God, He, he feeds the atheist every morning. He sends His rain on the just and the unjust alike. God is serving His creatures all the time. God is a servant God. And the Lord Jesus came to manifest that servanthood of God in the way He served others. John chapter 10, verses 32 to 38, we have the Lord Jesus dealing with some religious people who didn't like what Jesus was saying. And so Jesus says to them, Though you believe not me not, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me. So, in other words, God, in working through His servant, gives manifestation, gives reality to the fact that Jesus is who He said He was. There's no other explanation. So the Lord Jesus says, you don't like what I say, you like what I do? Well, good, that's a start. We were in Bethlehem years ago. I don't know if Brother Bill McCotter was there with me that time. But we were in Bethlehem, and we were speaking to a man who ran a home for blind and handicapped children in Bethlehem, surrounded by militant Muslims. And he said to us, our Muslim neighbors, they they don't like our Lord Jesus, but they like what we do. And I think that if we link good works with the gospel... We win friends for the Lord Jesus. We make people less antagonistic. You see, right now, in America, people think evangelicals are a voting block, a power block. They think they're the people who shoot abortion doctors. They're the people who are trying to stuff their their morality down our throats. And if we're going to win people to the gospel, we've got to get that animosity level down. We've got to convince people that, that God is love and that God wants to serve them. He wants to love them. And the way we do that is by doing it ourselves. This, uh, this love, you know, this idea of love means that we don't play fair. Okay? It's not tit for tat. 
Somebody says something nasty about me, I go to them and say, I heard you said something nasty about me. Yeah, what of it? Well, you know what I'm going to do? What? I'm going to pray for you. So there. Right? That's what Jesus said to do. And he proved it on the cross. He prayed for the people that were hanging him there. He said, this is, this is, the, this is my strategy. Something does, somebody does something nasty to you? Well, then you do something good to them. I was at a, an open air meeting in Vancouver, Stanley Park. There was a fellow who, uh, who had a, a dozen eggs. And a friend of mine was up actually leading the singing. There was a little lady playing a pump organ, and he was up leading the singing. And this fellow started lobbing these eggs at him. Well, it took him about eight eggs. He wasn't a very good aim. It took him about eight eggs to get the range right. And um, this little lady at piano was letting, you know, these, these uh, missiles flying by. Well, the last two were coming in, homing in on my friend who was leading the singing. And as they left this young fellow's hand, he said, uh, excuse me, folks. <laughs> and as they came down, he very deftly caught them without them breaking, you see. He said, uh, just a moment. And he got off his little box podium, and he walked right up to this fellow. He's quite a big guy. He walked right up to this fellow, and he said, you know what I'm going to do with these eggs? The guy says, what? He said, I'm going to take them home for breakfast. The guy tried to hit him. He said, no, you gave them to me. <laughs> now, you know, he, he won over the crowd. You know what they expected to happen. We don't want to give people what they expect. We want to surprise them. And that's what love does. Love delights in surprising people. Right? That's why we wrap up gifts and hide them. That's why we wait for the big day. That's why we think hard. What, what could I get for them that maybe they don't think I'm going to get for them, right? That's what, that's what love does. And the whole New Testament is chock full of surprises. The God who does exceeding abundantly above all we ask or think. That's what love does. Mrs. C.V. Baby. She's gone home to heaven, but she, she lived in a, in a little, uh, in, in Agra, in a little house right across the street from a sergeant in the Indian Army. He hated Christians. And he thought he would show his disdain for them by every morning coming across with a bucket of dirty garbage, of, of garbage and a bucket of dirty water. And he'd come across the street. They have little courtyards around their houses. And he'd dump the garbage over the wall, and then he'd dump the dirty water on top of it to make it a kind of soup. And so he did this one or two days. And uh, so one morning, Mrs. Baby went out, and she kind of hid behind the wall, and she waited for him to come all the way across. And just as he got there, she opened the gate. And um, he kind of stepped back a step, and she said, um, Oh, don't be scared, she said. Um, I just thought, it must be very hard for you to throw the garbage over the wall every morning. And so I'll try and meet you here to let you in. And if you want to dump it here, that's fine. Or if you want to dump it in our bed or our kitchen, you know, this doesn't bother us. We're, we're Christians, and we love our neighbors, and we're just so glad you come to visit. So, you know, you know, within a month, that man, it was the last time he ever brought the garbage, but within a month, he came over and asked if he could use the courtyard for his son's wedding reception. Love never fails. It's true, isn't it? Now, it doesn't mean that people always love us back. They didn't love Jesus back. But love wins in the end. Love triumphs in the end. When I arrived in Beijing, the man who picked me up was... um had been a, a member of the People's Liberation Army. They make a blood oath to the communist regime. And um, I asked him how he got saved, and he said, well, he'd been sent with another soldier to beat up a Christian girl. When they arrived at the house, he was treated like, he said, she treated us like honored guests, and she said, I know why you're here. Don't worry about me. This is the greatest honor of my life to suffer for Jesus. But I wonder if you'd do me a favor before you beat me, What's that? Well, could you tell me your names? 
So why? Well, Jesus said to pray for those who persecute you. So while you're beating me, I want to pray for you. Well, that's the way to take the wind out of a good beating, isn't it? You know, after a half-hearted beating, he snuck back around in the dark and came to her house and begged her apologies and, and said, we came to beat you, but you beat us. Can you tell me how to become a Christian? He was responsible last year for distributing 2.2 million pieces of literature, including, I think, 200,000 Bill McDonald commentaries in Mandarin. He said it was a good year. We, I think we, he said we had 25,000 pieces confiscated out of 2.2 million pieces of literature. You know, this is the story of history. John's taking a tour of heaven. And, um, and the cry goes out, is anybody worthy to open the book, to take the seal, break the seals? What is this book? This book is the title deeds of earth. And whoever it is that can come and set things right, can bring justice to the world, can, can restore the damage that's been done, is there anybody in the universe that can fix our poor world? And it seems there's nobody. Politicians can't do it. Philosophers can't do it. Educators can't do it. They've been trying for thousands of years. We've tried every form of government. Nothing seems to work. And John begins to weep. This poor, sad world, with all its abused wives and all its neglected children and all its homeless and all the wretchedness of this world, all the weeping at the graves, all of the disappointments in life, the broken dreams, the shattered relationships. Is there no one who can fix it? And John begins to sob. And an angel says, oh, don't weep, John. There is one. The lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. But John says, when I turned to look, I didn't see a lion. I saw a little lamb as it had been freshly slain. He is the lion. But it's not as the lion that he won the day. It's as the little lamb. Now, Christian, if you think that in your local assembly, when you have a problem with another Christian, that the way you're going to win is by being tough or having better arguments, you haven't been paying attention. The way to win is to get down and be a servant. Indeed, be a sacrifice. It's the only way it works, you know. And if we're going to win those who are around us, whose hearts are breaking who put on the happy face, who pretend everything's okay, and all the time their whole life is deconstructing. Their marriages are in tatters. Their, their hearts are broken. They have no hope. They don't know where to turn. They're desperately clinging to their religion as if, as if somehow like a little comfort blanket it's going to get them through the tough times. And all the time they know that their religion doesn't give them peace. It doesn't give them certainty. It doesn't give them hope. If we're going to help people like that, the first step forward, according to Scripture, is to love these people. To build relationships with them. To look for opportunities to serve them. To do good works in their lives. That's what disarms them. That's what brings the fortifications down. That's what causes them to, to yield the field and allow you to get in where you can do some good by introducing them to the little lamb. You can read the passages for yourself. 1 Timothy 6, those who are rich, and let me say everybody in this, in this area is rich today, 1% of the world's population has most of the wealth. If you went anywhere in the, in the developing world, you'd, you'd be considered to be a rich person. Those who are rich, he says... Make sure you're rich in good works. Not just the occasional, you know, little, little uh, gift tossed here and there, but to be rich in good works. Uh, women are to be beautified by good works. This, says Paul, is the way you get beautiful, not Vogue magazine. That's not the way to be beautiful. The way to be beautiful is to adorn yourself in good works. Widows. They shouldn't go, have to go back and, and, you know, eke out a living after their husbands die, getting a part-time job at, at Walmart. 
they should be, if they, if they have been one doing good works during their life, the assembly should financially support them, give them some gas in their car, give them some literature, give them what they need, and encourage them in a ministry of good works in the community. They should be looked on not as a charity case, but as blue chip stock to raise the, the credibility and the visibility of the Christians in the community by doing good works. Young men, says the scripture, young men, you should be doing good works. You should be looking for ways to help in your community and do good works. You will win friends for the gospel by doing good works. In fact, Paul says to Timothy that the grand purpose of scripture is to equip us for every good work. And you might want to read Titus 3 and 8, which, which links together, uh, Titus, pardon me, 3 and 14. Titus 3 8 says, be careful to maintain good works. But Titus 3 14 explains the direct relationship between good works and fruitfulness. And if you as a person are not being fruitful, and if your assembly is not being fruitful, you may want to read that verse again. It, it may very well be that the reason for lack of fruit in our good news is that we have divorced it from good works. And I would encourage you to seriously think about that. You know, you're going to have to take your life apart. You're going to have to uh, uh, go, do some spring cleaning because you're busy people. You're going to have to find ways to throw away things that do not have eternal benefit and replace them with things that will result in eternal bliss, eternal blessing. So may God encourage our hearts as we think about this. Faith works by love, and love never fails for His namesake.